be seated. Good morning, church. Well, thank you for joining us on this Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's good to have some of you who are here home uh, from uh, college and those of you who are visiting family for uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, we are just really grateful to have you with us on this uh, last Sunday before we enter into the Advent season. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 12. We'll be in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said this, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come under this teaching of Jesus and we acknowledge, Lord, that it is sometimes hard to see ourselves in this story because we live in a world that constantly tells us that we don't have enough and that we need more. Many of us have bought into the lie that we need something in this world to make us more secure that we spend so much of our time, Lord, worrying about things that will not go with us into the life ever after. And so this morning, Father, we ask that you would help us to hear these words anew, that they would be allowed to stir in our hearts and bring us closer to you. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, one, as many of you know, I've, I've been in the midst of a newborn life. We have a uh, six-week-old as well as a toddler, and I'm actually rather enjoying the toddler stage. Toddlers are great. They have, uh, the, they have this uh, toddler talk is great because they say this, the uh, most amazing things. And uh, it's, it's interesting you talk to Jeremy, and he'll tell you he did something yesterday, and literally it happened six months ago, but he just now has the words to explain it. And so he has this memory of something that happened six months ago, has no sense of time, and then he, but now he has words for it, so he talks about it, and he'll tell you he did it yesterday, and you're like, oh, that was a long time ago. Uh, the other thing is, it's interesting, because people like to talk about the Bible as a book of fairy tales for kids. And it, it may strike you sometimes that when you, when you read them, some of the stories to kids, you start to rethink how valid that is. The only person who would ever tell you the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales for kids hasn't really read the Bible. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to read a section out of uh, one of my favorite books to read with Jeremy, which is called Favorite Parables from the Bible. So they're going to come up as I read. So this is the story of uh, the rich farmer. Here is a farmer who is very rich. The farmer is rich because his soil is rich, and his corn grows faster than anyone else's and higher than anyone else's. And at harvest time, he has much more of it than anyone else. Lucky man. This year, he has so much corn that his old barn can't hold it all. It is bursting at the seams. No problem, says the farmer. I will pull it down and build a bigger one. 
then next year I'll be rich enough to take life easy. So he builds a bigger barn. But when harvest comes around again, the new barn is not big enough. The greedy farmer has planted more corn than before, and carrots too. No problem, says the farmer. I will build an even bigger barn, bigger, better barn. Then next year I will be richer still, and then can really enjoy myself. So he builds a bigger, better barn. But at harvest time, even the bigger, better barn is not big enough. Again, the farmer has planted too much corn, too many carrots, and a few cabbages as well. This time, the farmer says to himself, I will build the biggest, grandest barn the world has ever seen. And then I shall be so rich, I need never work again. The barn he builds reaches up to the sky. When it is finished, the farmer sighs a great sigh. Tomorrow, I will gather in the harvest, and then at last I shall begin to enjoy myself. I know, I'll have a party. But that very night, he dies in his sleep, just like that. The birds eat his corn, the rabbits dig up his carrots, and his cabbages go to seed. The big barn stands empty, and the rich farmer never does get to enjoy his money. Poor man. Jesus says, how silly it is for a man to spend his whole life storing up riches for himself. To God, he is really a poor man. I think the writer took a few liberties with the story. And yet at the same time, you can imagine that what Jesus tells us kind of, when you read it, it's like a one-time thing. You realize probably was something that happened over and over and over like the story realizes or that the story brings out. But imagine trying to explain to a three-and-a-half-year-old, you know, build a bigger barns, bigger barns, bigger barns, and dead. My son's like, where did the man go? What does it mean that he died? And this parable actually brings out a very hard aspect of God. God doesn't just chastise the man and give him mold to his crops so that next year he can have a new crop. He doesn't just cause lightning to strike the barn and catch it on fire. God doesn't just bring people who come in and steal what he stored up in his barns so that he would have nothing and could start over. God literally takes his life. The passage in the Bible tells us God demanded his life. It was required of him. We live in a world that doesn't like that aspect of God. We like this aspect of God where God's just going to give us whatever we want, kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus. And if we don't get it this year, we can ask God, and then maybe he'll give it to us next year. And if we don't get it this year, next year. Or we think that if we just do the right thing here or there, then we will persuade God to give us what he wants. But this parable brings out this very difficult aspect of God where he does say, at this, when, 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 when that final time comes, it says, your life has been demanded of you. And as the parable brings out, he dies. And all that he labored for went to nothing. Well, what will we do with that story? How does that apply to us? When I think about this passage, I think people, maybe some in this room, we have a tendency to, to do a few things with this story. The first is we tell ourselves that because we tithe, we're okay. I get my check, I get my paycheck from, from work, I write immediately, send my 10% electronically, Wes, uh, to church, 
And uh, then I could do the rest with, I could do whatever I want with the rest of it, and therefore I don't have to worry about the story. In fact, I, I have people who I know very well, who the, what, they, what they were taught was that as long as they gave 10% to church, they could do whatever they wanted with the rest. And so there's people I know who gave 10% to church, and then they racked up credit card debt. I have no idea how that happens. But that's what they did, and they thought that was still honoring to God, because they gave God their 10%. So the way some of us deal with this text and how it makes us maybe a little uncomfortable is we say, I gave 10%. I gave my 10% to God, and uh, then I could do the rest, whatever I want with the rest. Some of us look at this text and go, I'm not like this man because I don't have a lot of surplus. I'm paycheck to paycheck. You see, in the story, the farmer has surplus, it says. He takes his surplus, and with the surplus, he tries to store it away. Well, I don't have surplus. I I live paycheck to paycheck. So this passage doesn't apply to me because I I don't have a lot of extra. I can barely make it from one paycheck to the next. So some people say, this is a great story, and one day it'll apply to me, but it doesn't right now because I'm not a person of surplus. The third way I think some people deal with it is, the problem with this guy is, he just thought about himself, and he kept it all to himself. But I give to charity. So as long as I give to charity, this doesn't apply to me because I support Harvest Home. I support Claris. I support uh, life water, and I supply, uh, support Habitat for Humanity. I give money away, and because I give money, to, uh, give money away, this doesn't apply to me. So I feel like there's a lot of ways we, get, we deal with the tension that this test brings to us by, by deflecting. I tithe. Oh, I don't have enough. Or I give to charity. So I, this, does, this isn't me. This isn't me. I give money away. I, I, don't, I don't do this. And we find a way to kind of skirt the issue. But I think the context of this passage doesn't allow any of us that luxury. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 12, starting verse 1, it says this. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. Jesus began uh, began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the context of this story is that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. There's all these people, these people who came to see Jesus, and they're pushing and shoving each other. So as Jesus looks, he sees the people coming to see him, and they're pushing and shoving each other. They're all trying to get to him. They're all jockeying for positions of of better favor. You see, because like in in this culture, your position relative to the person of honor is also a reflection of who you are. You sit closer, then you're more important. You sit further apart, you're less important. So people are jockeying for the better positions. So you have a large crowd that's come to see Rabbi Jesus. And as he's teaching, he notices they're jockeying for positions of favor, to be a better position, to be in a better, uh, to be a more recognized person, to have more value, so to speak. And as he does that, he tells them some things that'll help them. It says he talks to his disciples, tells them what they're going to face and how we ought to deal with it. And then it says this, And starting in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I noticed that in this, in the midst of Jesus talking to them about dealing with the brokenness of the way they've approached relationships with each other, this person comes up to him and says, rabbi, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's interesting because what's happened here is that this man now has experienced a rupture of a relationship. 
You see, in, in Middle Eastern culture, uh, a lot of decisions would be made through lots of conversation. And, and siblings having, uh, having things that they co-own or share, if they're dealing about how to separate it, this would be a family discussion with lots of input. And you get lots of people uh, weighing in on it. And this is Asian families are a lot this way. It's like, it's never, just, it's never just their business. It's everyone else's business too. And they all try to tell you how it should be done. How do you divide this up? What should go where? Uh, and, and they give you input. And so what happens is here, apparently, uh, a father has died. And there's a, but not left a will. And according to the Jewish law, you couldn't divide the land unless the older brother agreed. Uh, the default in the book of Moses was that the older brother would get two-thirds and the younger would get one-third, but that was like a, a guideline, so to speak. And the, the older brother had to approve it, and the older brother was responsible for things. And so this younger brother comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You get the sense that he's calling out for justice, like he's got to divide it. He's got to give me my portion. He's not giving me my portion. But at the same time, he doesn't go to Jesus and say, Rabbi, my brother and I are, are having a disagreement. And lest this disagreement cause a rupture in our relationship, help us settle it. But instead, he's taking it to Jesus because he wants Jesus to make a decision, suggesting that the relationship between the brothers has already ruptured. There's already been a divide between the brothers, so much so that they can't listen to their family members. There's no one else they would go to, so they're going to go to a rabbi who they don't know to try to settle the argument for them. Rather than seeking reconciliation, he's seeking to divide. So Jesus says this, man, man, this is not a nice thing. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus has given what sounds like a reasonable request. Tell my brother to divide the possessions with me. Divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus doesn't actually answer the question, does he? Jesus is so frustrating. You like ask him a question and he tells you a story or he tells you something else. Instead of telling, well, how, you know, my thing would be like, well, how much do you have? How are you guys planning on dividing it? What's your liquid assets? What are not liquid? Uh, what are the, you know, how long have you had this? What do you care about? What do you, I would like, I would want to like take the spreadsheet and write things down. I want to say like what's fair and what's not fair. Jesus says, man, who appointed me to be a judge or arbiter between you? You see, he doesn't even address the man as friend. He doesn't address the man as brother. He addresses the person as man. You can sense Jesus' annoyance at being asked to come into the situation. And you get the sense that, like, Jesus doesn't want to be the one who finalizes a rupture in relationship. So in the midst of that, because God cares about relationship, Jesus tells us a principle that will help restore relationship. And he tells them that life is more than possessions. Have you ever wondered if you didn't care so much about things, whether they be prestige or actual things, how many fewer arguments you would have? How often do we get ourselves into disagreements and fights because of our possessions, the things we want or the things we don't have? And the thing that Jesus reminds him is that we have to be on the guard against greed because life does not consist in an abundance of our possessions. Life is more than our possessions, you might say. So he says this, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. This is what I'll do. Next slide. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, it's at this point that it's interesting because this rich guy, this rich farmer, this rich uh, landowner has land that is really rich. He's blessed because he has ground that yields a rich harvest. So his workers work the land. It yields an abundant harvest, and he has a ton left. And in the midst of that, the first thing he says, well, what will I do with my stuff? What am I going to do with all I have? And he has this internal dialogue. If you want to learn about internal dialogue, the book of Luke, there's seven different times where Jesus tells parables where there's internal dialogue. It's a big thing in the book of Luke. There's seven different parts where there's internal dialogue, and that always becomes the crux of the issue in the book of Luke. So you can go back and read through the book of Luke and read through the parables and think about this internal dialogue that's going on. But he's talking to himself. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones, and then I'll stir my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So he talks to himself. You get this sense. He has no one else to talk about. What do I do with all the stuff I have? He doesn't think about, he doesn't do like Wes does. One thing I loved about Wes, Wes has this business that has gone through ups and downs. Uh, and one of the things that Wes has often talked about when he talks about his company is how it's going to impact his workers how he's trying to manage his policies so that the people who work for him are well cared for. Uh, and I've always respected that about Wes. You know, uh, Jim talks about his teachers and people who work for him at Pacifica and how he tries to, to, to manage things so that they can thrive and flourish. But this man, when he talks about what he's going to do with everything, he talks about what he's going to do for himself, for his comforts, for his pleasure, for his future, and you don't get the sense that he has any uh, care about what's going to happen for other people. It's all, all his internal dialogue is self-centered. It's all about himself, his future, his comforts, his things. So, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus says in the parable that this is foolishness. The emphasis on building bigger and better for self. This emphasis on internal obsession with how I'm going to keep my comforts going. This obsession with what I'm going to do in the future for my future comforts. This focus on self, self, self ends up being the way of foolishness. And it says your life will be demanded from you. It's very interesting. This phrase in Greek, your life will be demanded from you, was a business phrase. It often referred, it was the same phrase that says, I'm going to call the loan. I'm going to call out the loan. And so it's like Jesus using this term for business, saying, like, I'm, I'm demand, when it says my life is demanding, is being demanded of you, it's like he's saying the owner is calling out the loan. Do you realize that all that you have is a loan? God is letting you use your body, your mind, your things, your relationships your faith. God is allowing you to use that for his glory. You have been given your life, your body, your emotions, your faith. Believe it, your emotions. Did you know that you were given your emotions by God for his glory? 
You were given your mind, your physical body. Some of you have healthier bodies than others, but God gave you your body and your physical resources for his glory. It's all alone. And so one thing that Jesus brings out in this parable is one day the owner is going to say to me, it's time to call in the loan. And for the foolish man, all he did with the loan was self-absorbed, self-glorification, self-preservation, self-comforting. And he says, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And so this is how it will be for whoever stores up for things for themselves but is not rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? If you really think about it, this is an insane proposition. Imagine if you are a billionaire. I think Jeff Bezos has more than a billion dollars, right? Imagine if you're a billionaire. If somebody gives you a million dollars, that's like a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. So imagine if I go up to Jeff Bezos and say, here's $10. I mean, his toilet paper is maybe money. I don't know. I mean, but like, it's, it's insane. How am I going to be rich towards Jeff Bezos? God made everything in the entire world. He holds it on his fingertip. At a moment's notice, he can breathe on it and blow it all the smithereens. God can close his eyes and without even thinking about it, sustain it for eons and eons. We look at the stars. We send the Hubble telescope to show, uh, and look at things, to set, look at more of the stars. He goes, that's nothing. I did those in a day. And I have far reaches of the universe. What can you give to God? But that's the irony, right? God has everything and doesn't need anything. But the Bible says that we can bless God that we have the ability to be rich towards God. How can God, who has everything, needs nothing, is truly self-sustaining, self-creating? He's the one who can do everything he wants. He doesn't need a thing from us, and yet I can be rich towards God? You can be rich towards God? Does that just blow your mind? What is going on here? How is it that I am going to be rich towards God? What can I offer God that he needs? How would I even be like even hint or even begin to say, hey, I'm rich towards God? What does that look like? I just can't even fathom it. And on the, on the one hand, in this room, there are some of you who say, God needs me. I got so much to offer God. <laughs> I mean, some of you think the church would fall apart if you weren't here, and you don't realize God doesn't need you like that. Some people think, man, God, God definitely wants me in heaven. Some people in the room are like, I got nothing to give God. I'm just a mess. God can't use me. Do you realize to both the parable speaks? You can be rich towards God. You will also be called on account of your life. As I think about this paradigm, this balance of both and, I can't help but think of my son Unlike Trevor, I've never promised never to use my kids. I think God gave me kids so that I can use them as object lessons. Uh, so, like, Jeremy's just going to grow up knowing that he's going to be object lesson. I grew up as an object lesson all the time. I think God gave me kids so I can have more object lessons. But, you know, I tell you, the other night, my dad teared up, and it was Thanksgiving night. Jeremy 
saw this medal hanging in my sister's room. We were at my parents' house. And it was a medal that her son, my nephew, got for running in a race. Little does my son know, it's one of those participation medals. So, you know, it's not like first place. But we told him it was a medal. And, and, and he watches enough Disney movies to know that, like, if you, you can win a prize for winning the race. So we told him it was, oh, it was a prize. And so he took it and he goes, he goes to Lisa and he says, you're the best mama in the whole world. My, mom st- my dad starts tearing up because he's, he's sappy that way. He tells this to my mom. Lisa, of course, gets walled up. He blessed Lisa in that moment because he gave her something that was from his heart, that was genuine, and that reflected his relationship with her. Did Lisa need it? Maybe in some sense, yes, but not really. Lisa's life would go on without any of that. And, and that just makes me think about how we relate to God. Because when I think about being rich towards God, it is giving him worship and adoration. It is giving him our all. It is taking whatever we have and giving him the best. It's taking what we have and giving it to his glory and to his honor and to his satisfaction. You see, the challenge of this parable is Jesus ends with, this is how it's going to be for whoever's not rich towards God. But he never tells you what it is to be rich towards God. So we have to learn kind of by inference. And so we'll start with what being rich toward God isn't. So it's not being self-centered. So if you look at, if you look at the rich fool, he was self-centered. You read through the parable, there's more than 15 times it's about I, me, or mine. Self-centeredness is opposite to being rich towards God. I, me, mine, my grain, my land, my barns, my pleasures, my comforts, my future, my party. I will, I will, I will, I will. You see, it's focused on building bigger, but not necessarily for God. There's no sense in the parable that as he talks about building bigger or better, that he was doing it for the Lord. God has no problem with storage. I mean, think about it. Joseph stores enough food for a famine for seven years. He does it to God's glory. This guy does it to his own glory, his own comfort. So building bigger, but not necessarily for God. The third thing we see is he's devoid of gratitude and thanksgiving. Nowhere in this parable does the man say, I have been blessed by God with land that is fertile and that yields an abundant crop. Nowhere in the parable does he say, I thank God for his goodness to me, and therefore I will do this. His his whole interaction, even his whole thought world, doesn't reflect any gratitude or thanksgiving for God. Fourth, he focused on this world and its comforts. You never get the sense that he thinks about the life to come. Uh, Augustine used to say that that this rich fool, that his barns, were safer than the stomachs of the poor. Because Augustine's sense was that, like, if he had given that surplus to the stomachs of the poor and the needy, those would have become an inheritance for him in heaven. But instead, he tried to hoard it for his life here. He only thought about this world and its comforts. And the other thing I see is that he was not in intimate community or relationship. All his thinking is about himself. 
All his thinking is about what he's going to do, and he has no one else to talk about it, no one to knock some sense on him, no one who has a parent to tell him that he's making a mistake, or a brother or sister to say, hey, I think, I think you're missing something. He doesn't have anyone in the story who will interact with him and say, hey, why are you building this ridiculously big barn when there's all this other stuff you can do with it? Why are you building all this stuff for yourself? You're not even, that big barn that is so big, you can't even, you're not even live long enough to eat all that food. He doesn't have anyone who will tell him all that. And so I think about these things as being the opposite of being rich towards God. So while God, Jesus doesn't tell us what it means to be rich towards God, he certainly by illustration tells us what, it's not, what it is not like. It's not self-centered. It doesn't just build bigger it doesn't, just, uh, it doesn't do things with the absence of gratitude and thanksgiving. It doesn't do things that are focused on this world. And it doesn't do things in the absence of community and relationship. But that leaves us with the question, what does it mean to be rich towards God? I don't actually know. I don't know what will it be, it'll be for you. Noah's at uh, Cal Baptist. Uh, Ellie's at University of Wisconsin. Vinod works in business. Some of you are retired. Some of you um, are in law school, right, Liza? So that's your resource. How will you be rich towards God in that? Some of you are mothers raising kids. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are students. What will you do with what you have? It's easy to say, hey, I don't have any surplus. This doesn't apply to me. But it's very different to say everything belongs to God. It's all been given to me as a loan. I get to manage and steward this to the glory of God. And the question for each and every one of us is, what will we do with what we have to the glory of God? When the loan is called into account, will you be able to say, I was rich towards God. Because the aspect of this parable that makes us uncomfortable is we know that a day will come when the loan is called in. And some people will, will be taken away and will not receive the heavenly reward. In the parable, the man dies and everything he strived for went to the birds, literally to the birds. And that makes us uncomfortable, church. But the reality is if we love one another, if we care about relationship like Jesus, the most important thing we can do is remind each other that what we've been given is a loan from God and that we have the ability to be rich towards God in what we have. And that the consequence of choosing not to be rich towards God with what we have is to have everything we've labored for to go to the birds and to be eternally lost. And so church this morning, I want to encourage you. That's not a very happy Thanksgiving message. But to me, it's incredibly beautiful. Because too many of my friends and family have undersold what they have. They think they have nothing to offer God. And they live like it. But imagine if they started living like they had everything to offer God. Imagine if they lived like they could be rich towards God. Imagine what, people, what the world would be like if everyone around you lived like they took what they had and they were going to be rich towards God, that they were going to live to bless God, that they were going to bring fullness and God's beauty into a world that is devoid of beauty and quickly sliding into chaos. Imagine what the world would be like 
If everyone in this room said, God's one day going to call in the loan, and I'm going to have been shown to be rich towards God. Can you imagine the ridiculousness of God even saying you could be rich to him? And we've been invited to be those people who step into the story of God, to partner with him, and to be rich towards him. And because of that, the world will see Jesus like they've never seen before. Let's pray. Father, we confess. I confess, Lord, that it's so easy to focus on what I don't have or the things I still want. And it's easy for me to take for granted all that I've been given. And yet, God, there's this mystery that you made the world and all that is in it. You hold life in the palm of your hands. The diamonds exist in mines to be had because you made them. Oils in the depths of the earth because you put it there. The stars twinkle and solar power exists because you made the sun, the moon, and the stars. You give us breath to breathe. You give it all to us, Lord. And it's, it's, it's such a crazy idea to think that we could bless you and be rich towards you and that we could honor you And yet, Father, we, we acknowledge that so often we settle for less. We settle for an unglorified life. We settle for a life that is making this world more comfortable but gives no glory to you. And so this morning, Father, we ask that you would help us to ponder anew what it would mean to live our lives to the glory of God. That we would be rich towards you, Lord Jesus. Father, this morning there may be some who have not put their faith in Jesus. Those who have chosen to make themselves the master of their own lives. And this morning they have been encouraged and nudged to put their faith in Jesus. In this moment, if that's you, may you give your life to Jesus. May you confess him as Lord and as Savior. And may you commit to living your life to his glory. And Father, anyone who has just given their lives to you, we ask that you would receive them in faith and create anew in them the life that is everlasting. Some of us, Father, have, have given our lives to you but as stewards and as those who have been given a great bounty to manage, we have been neglectful. We have been self-seeking and self-serving. And we want to take this morning to confess our sin, that we have taken the holy things you have given us and we have treated them in an unholy way. And we ask, Father, that you would receive our confession now. Father, as those who have confessed our sin before you, we also are the faithful who have received your forgiveness and the promise to be made new. 
We ask that through the work of your Holy Spirit, God, you would transform us and renew us and help us to live more for you today than we did yesterday, this week than last week, this year than last year. Father, that you would allow us to step into all that you have in store for us, that the glory of your beauty and the richness of your kingdom uh, would be expressed by us in our lives through the overflow of your spirit. Father, we ask that as we enter into this time of communion, that your spirit would stir in our hearts, that we would be drawn to the table and to the cross and to one another, that we would fall on our knees in gratitude for the one who would die on the cross to save us from our sins, the one who would be lifted up in agony and humiliation for the sake of our sins. And because of his glorification, we have promise of life everlasting. God, we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.